Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. B. Goodkin is the founder and editor of Creative Nonfiction, the first and largest literary magazine devoted to the genre. He currently teaches in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University, and before that founded the University of Pittsburgh's program in creative nonfiction. His works of immersion in journalism include Almost Human, Making Robots Think, Many Sleepless Nights, The World of Organ Transplantation, and The Best Seat in Baseball, But You Have to Stand, a book about umpires. His most recent book, My Last 8,000 Days, An American Man in His 70s, was published in October 2020. Lee Goodkin, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Rob, so nice to, to be here and talk with you and, uh, and reconnect with you after so long. You've written about yourself in one form or another for pretty much your entire professional writing career from your motorcycle book on, but you've never written a memoir before. Why, why is that, do you think? Yes, I've written about myself before, but I noticed, <laughs> I realized that it was a gradual process for me. When I did Many Sleepless Nights, which was in the late 80s, early 90s, the word I was never used to refer to me. And I was very careful about that all the way through until the end author's note to just look at the world through other people's eyes. But since that time, more and more of me, more and more of what I thought and felt and observed came out in my work in other immersion books. And so it was, on the one hand, a natural process. But on the other hand, Certain things happened to me during my life, especially the last few years prior to turning 70, that really dismayed me and frightened me and made me realize that I needed to make a change. I wanted to make a change in myself, and I also wanted to make a change in the way in which I wrote. And so it was kind of a, a double decision one, to um, take this immersion, this deep dive inside of myself, and two, to take a deep dive in many respects in another way to deal with this whole creative nonfiction, narrative nonfiction world. Do you think that this is something that happens when someone writes his whole life about other people and then finally turns to himself? It, it turns into... a a new world in many respects. It turns into something you have done for your whole life and then gradually or even suddenly you begin to see where are my challenges? How often am I going to immerse myself in other people's lives and subcultures? Why can't I try something new and do it right and dig as deep as possible into the soul of the story even though the soul of the story or the soul being roasted or taken apart is you. I was thinking about an aside you made when you talked about the writer and his assignment. It really struck home with me. You say, while I'm away, away from reporting, I'm obsessively thinking about them, writing about them, trying to understand and portray them in a way that will be accurate, honest, and genuine. They live and breathe in my head constantly. And I know that feeling, you know, the feeling that you, even though you're far away, either geographically or otherwise, you're living someone else's reality. Sometimes you're living so deeply in other people's lives that you, you're really not that aware or you don't care too much about the life you are leading when you are away from the people about whom you're writing. 
I was kind of obsessed and plagued. Even when I was not in the room or in the venue, I couldn't stop thinking about what might be happening while I'm not there or how I might be able to dig even deeper into their lives and into their challenges and difficulties. It's kind of a lonely life when you're not in a book. We're all searching for books. And during the six months or year or, or three or four years between books, you either self-discover yourself or you feel kind of dangling in a world of nowhere. And we immersion people very often get so deeply involved in the lives of the people about whom we're writing that there's no space for anyone else. And when the book is done, when it's all over, yes, there's a feeling of triumph. But on the other hand, there's this empty space there. And so often when you go from book to book, you lose the people that you have been involved with for months and years, and you have to start to make new friends and sell yourself and establish yourself all over again. In your book, the city of Pittsburgh is also very much a character. You have these wonderful descriptions, both of the city as a character and then characters in the city. And you say at one point, the city seemed to be engulfed in weirdos doing outrageous things, mostly illegal, and for the most part getting away with their crimes, at least for a while. My mother loved these guys. It was all part of the Pittsburgh personality, we agreed. What made the city unique and more than a little peculiar. Tell me about what makes Pittsburgh so peculiar. What is the Pittsburgh personality? Well, we are kind of weirdos, and we're stuck in the middle of being in the East and being in the Midwest, and there doesn't seem to be a place for us. We don't want to be Midwesterners. We don't want to connect to people in Indiana, and we feel in many ways that we have some sort of a link to the metropolitan areas of New York and Boston. We want to feel sophisticated. And so very often we take on our own personas and we glorify people who do some daring and weird and sometimes not particularly lawful things. Like the guy who leaped from the bridge to nowhere, this guy, Frederick Williams, who just took his Jeep and sped for no reason whatsoever that anybody had ever been able to figure across the bridge, broke through the wooden barriers and sailed across the Monongahela River and landed on the other side with the car turned down. And Mr. Williams, soon to be Dr. Williams, got up and walked away with only a few scratches. And it became such a mystery in Pittsburgh for such a long time. Why did he do it? Nobody knows. And how he did he survive? Nobody knows that. I, I don't know the exact right way to say this without being offensive, because I don't mean to be, but you had a very unliterary childhood. You were a, a bit of a truant, you say. You weren't necessarily the best student. You weren't the best behaved. And you don't really come into your own until you join the Coast Guard. I graduated in the bottom part of the fifth, fifth of my class. In fact, I tried to get into 
a college anywhere in the United States or anywhere close by Pittsburgh. And uh, there were no community colleges then. And I really didn't want to go to college. I had no idea what I wanted to do, except I wanted to leave Pittsburgh. And if you recall in the book, I weighed 225 pounds and I wanted to lose weight. I thought that that would make me feel better. And so uh, the military was an option that I chose. And I did, in fact, lose 60 or so pounds in boot camp and came out feeling much better about myself. And then while on active duty, there was very little to do but go to the library and read books, which is pretty much what I did. And it's not as if I wasn't a reader when I was growing up and in high school, but books suddenly took on a life of their own for me. And so I began sketching out my world on my little typewriter and in my in, in my notebook, even as I was in the Coast Guard. And then afterwards, the idea of becoming a writer grew bigger and bigger. And when I finally arrived as a part-time night school student at the University of Pittsburgh, I found professors who were incredibly encouraging. The books you describe reading in the uh, Coast Guard were uh, all fiction. How did you make the transition into nonfiction? Because that seems to be certainly the the, the thing one associates you with. The more I thought about it, the more I thought that so many of the novels I was interested in and reading were, this sounds so silly, but were based on uh, real life. And I began to wonder where that line was between a writer's real world and the liberties he or she took to make the book and the stories more compelling. It occurred to me that there wasn't this gigantic line that people had described for so long between fiction and nonfiction. It was a matter of degree in some respects. I was especially taken by Kerouac's On the Road, and I read that book a number of times, and I kept thinking about what Kerouac really did experience and uh, what he amplified for the sake of the reader and for the sake of the joy of taking a small story and making it much bigger and more complicated and, and therefore more compelling. That's kind of the way I started thinking about it without even knowing that there was such a thing as creative nonfiction or uh, the new journalism. And I think that some of the freshness of, of what you've done in your writing and also in your teaching in your journal, maybe it's marked by that. The fact that you came at it from fiction and then decided that rather than, say, continue yourself as a novelist, say, and retreat into fiction that you sort of, you know, saw the biographical or the autobiographical element and thought, that's the direction that I'll go in. Some of the most creative people in audio have no journalism background whatsoever. Uh, they come out of music oftentimes. They're good at Pro Tools and various editing suites. And I'd argue that some of the freshness of, you know, Jad Albumrod and Radio Lab and other is that they really come at it from a completely different place. And, and maybe you bring some of that uh, both in a in a kind of class sense, and also in this sense of, of really coming to this while in the Coast Guard reading fiction. I think th that's so true. And may I say, I, I'd like to think of creative nonfiction, the genre, as an everyman's, an every person's genre. And that's kind of how creative nonfiction started to become so popular. It seemed like to many people I've talked with, it seemed like, well, 
um, I don't know anything about poetry and I don't want to write poetry. So I'm out as a writer and the same in many ways with fiction, but it, but creative nonfiction, this meshing of literary techniques with fact opened the door for lots of folks who wanted to write write something, but not necessarily have to be bound by the rules of the journalist or any barriers or boundaries at all. And it doesn't matter that I don't have an education and I don't have a PhD. It matters that I'm a bricklayer and I can say a hell of a lot about what it is I do and how I feel about my work. I always say that there's something very democratic, small d, about literary journalism for exactly the reasons you point out. Your career shows it. McPhee's career shows it. Anything you can turn to with great seriousness and investment can become literary journalism. And as you're saying, it doesn't mean that you have to be credentialed in any sense in order to um, do that. One question I've always asked literary journalists of one sort or another is about what kind of relationship they have to uh, Tom Wolfe and his manifesto about the new journalism. Was that an important text for you? That's Something I've been thinking about a lot, in fact, lately, the person who really affected me more than anyone was Gay Talese. And some of the pieces that he did were, let us say, honest and very quiet. And very often, Talese did not focus on the big hit and the big people. He was a guy who tried to discover new people, smaller people, like in the book, The Bridge, or avoid the obvious stories in the bigger stories he was telling by looking behind the scenes and writing again about the people who weren't necessarily so easy to publicize. But without Tom Wolfe, as <laughs> sometimes obnoxious as he was, without Tom Wolfe sitting down and taking this step and deciding that there was, there really wasn't, but there was this new journalism, this new way of writing that was suddenly emerging without him making these statements and insisting in essay and after essay that th this was something new and amazing and terrific and released us all from the boundaries that we thought we were stuck with. Without his statement, I don't think that this movement would have taken hold so fast. How would you distinguish what you and your journal do that is different from what, say, practitioners like Wolf do? What, what's the difference that makes the difference between Lee Goodkin's creative nonfiction and Tom Wolf's new journalism? For one thing, the new journalism was for many years a New York thing. The New Yorker, New York Magazine, the Trib, and also it was really aimed at the journalistic community. He criticized the journalistic community and also praised them when they reached out and did something different. But what creative nonfiction did was try to open up the doors to other writers who had things to say and wanted to experiment and try other things, but didn't find an audience or an outlet that would be open to them. What we did was to encourage the crossing of genres from one kind of writing to another and be an open and welcome outlet for those folks who wanted to try something new, who wanted to stretch themselves a little bit. And frankly, the same thing happened with women writers. Uh, back to Tom Wolfe and his collection, uh, there were, I think, only 
two women that he decided to publish, Joan Didion and Barbara Goldsmith. And we wanted to open the doors to other kinds of thoughts and feelings. And so we did two issues initially that were women writing nonfiction issues. And again, we kept opening the door. With Wolf, I think sometimes the implication is you have to be this sort of superstar. You have to aspire to that kind of grandiosity. And uh, I think that the, the tone that you are, the note you're striking in creative nonfiction is uh, is a very different one. And I think a, a necessary one that gives courage to people in every profession, in every part of life, in every stage of their lives to tell their stories or tell stories uh, in a very different way. One of the things that your book really gets at is this sense of kind of belatedness and, and disappointment. There's a sense of something having passed by, something not quite having made sense. You, you write it at sort of a turning point in your life. Your mother has died. Your friend Frank has died. Your son is having some difficulties. Uh, your weight gain is coming back. Uh, the book that you were uh, pursuing about the this uh, rabbi collapses. And you're trying to sort of make sense of it and figure out a way to to live out these 8,000 days that is, that's going to be satisfying. I felt a lot of pain. My mom and I were incredibly close, and she died five days before my 70th birthday. And you mentioned my friend Frank, who died a little bit before that. And my other best friend, a guy who kind of raised me, was run over by a car in the middle of the night. And this book about the rabbi that I so thought was going to, let's say, invigorate, enliven, and enliven my literary career turned out to be a sham. It was such a crashing disappointment. And there were other things happening in my life as well. And it just seemed to me that not only did I want to try something new, but I wanted to reevaluate what I had done in my life and try to figure a way out of it because I didn't want to continue living the life that um, that I had. I sent an early draft to a friend who said, you know, the writing was pretty good. You're telling great stories, but there's an antagonistic sound or tone to your voice. You seem angry. And so I went back and began writing it again. And the more I modified, the more I dug deeper into why I felt so angry and antagonistic. And uh, yes, it allowed me to become much more honest with myself and my reader. Your relationship with your father um, really struck me. Uh, so your father's mother dies when he's very young. And then the next week, literally, his father, your grandfather, is marrying another woman and effectively uh, making him an orphan, which you say also is how he's referred to in, in the neighborhood. And how your father had so much trouble attaching, how much tr trouble he had linking with people. I just thought about the legacy of that and the way we have to sort of chew over it uh, for the rest of our lives and try to come out some kind of conclusion that lets us be legitimately aggrieved, but not let that sadness ruin us. My, my father was a really troubled guy, and he made my life quite uncomfortable. And I really resented him, and I really did everything I could do to stay away from him. And I carried that around for a long time because I was really petrified of becoming the man who brought me into this world. And it took me a very long time to be able to understand that he had his own very big, uh, as you 
outlined difficulties and that I wasn't my father. I did have certain traits of my father that I had to work on very carefully to, um, to stay in control, not to get rid of, but to just stay in control. And it took me so long, so many years to be able to come to grips with literally my fear of becoming my father. You talk a lot about the isolation of old age. As we get older, we all start losing people in our 50s, 60s, 70s. And you also write about the way that you chip away at that, the small changes you make in your life that start to open things up a a little bit. I was just thinking about in this this COVID age where the various bars you would sort of go to to seek solace uh, in the evenings. uh, What do you think about the situation of an older person today where you can't go inside and can't really have any kind of real communion with somebody. I was a, a very much afraid of that. And I made first a small and then much larger efforts to change the trajectory of, of my old age. And I did have places to go and things to do. And I made a bunch of new friends. And then suddenly COVID hit. And indeed, an older person is more isolated than ever. But I have made an incredible effort to stay in touch with those people that I used to hang out with and see them via Zoom as often as possible. And I continue to walk the streets with a mask, of course, and continue to try to establish and save my own personal community. And it's been pretty satisfying to me. Um, Now I recognize people with masks (laughs) and try to connect with them. Thank you for writing this book and thank you for talking to us. I I feel as if it's really the, the culmination of a lot of your work, both as a teacher and a mentor and as a writer. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.